A different kind of leader captures insights from diverse leaders in healthcare, public health, and academic settings so that our organizations are in a stronger position to grow, innovate, and meet the challenges of our day. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Tracy Collins, a dear colleague and friend of mine. Dr. Collins is the Dean of the University of New Mexico College of Population Health, one of three in the nation. She has served as the University of Kansas Department Chair and Kansas Health Foundation Distinguished Professor. Dr. Collins is a clinician and researcher who studies the racial disparities in the impact of serious vascular disorders. Tracy, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So as we begin each interview, I wanted to ask you for a quote that embodies your leadership style or your approach to your career or just a quote that really inspires you. Yeah, this quote has come from my mother and it goes back to when I was in college considering medical school. And she looked at me and said, if it's worth having, you have to work for it. Mm. And that has stuck with me all these years that the things that you value most often take time and effort to accomplish. Yep. Yeah. Sage advice from your mom. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in the work that you're doing? What was your sort of early thoughts about this career? How did you even come to it? And a little bit about your leadership journey. Yeah, so when I was finishing up residency in internal medicine in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I really enjoyed taking care of patients. However, I wondered, what more can I do? Is it just about seeing one patient after another, or is there a way that I can have more of an impact? So as I began to ask some questions, a general medicine fellowship was pretty new in its tenure, and one of my attendings at University of Oklahoma had actually completed a general medicine fellowship. And she encouraged me to look into that. And so there are two programs. There was Harvard, there was Johns Hopkins. And I interviewed at both. And then ultimately, Harvard was a better fit for me. So I decided to go there. But completing that fellowship allowed me to get my master's in public health. It allowed me to get my feet wet with teaching and becoming an educator. And then getting a better understanding of clinical research. And so it was those two years after residency where my colleagues who were out in private practice were making six-figure salaries. Yeah. I was still hobbling along. (laughs) Right. But ultimately, I was going to make a difference. So that was my initial taste of the options of academic medicine and what it had to offer. And from there, I was fortunate to meet uh, Carol Ashton, who was one of my, Mm. probably my second mentor. Jennifer Daly was my first And she recruited me down to Baylor, to Houston, to start working at the VA. And my first real position in academia as an assistant professor was as a health services researcher. So I was there in Houston for about almost eight years. And the advice Carol Ashton gave me was that you're doing a good job, but I encourage you about every five years to reevaluate your current academic home. Not that you have to leave, but just to make sure it's still a good fit and see what else is out there. So from there, I actually looked around, ironically, in Kansas. I looked in Missouri, and I ended up connecting again with Jazz Alawalia. And he said, you know, you should come up to Minnesota and work with me, mm-hmm. and we can get you some NIH funding. We can get you more entrenched in the School of Public Health. 
you can continue with seeing patients. And eventually I did move up to Minnesota and I was there for about five years when an opportunity came across my desk to chair a department. Now, as you know, Giselle, in general internal medicine, we kind of have this path we follow. You can become a division director or a center director, mm -hmm. then maybe a chair, then a dean. But what they offered in Wichita, and I had never lived in Wichita, Kansas, was an opportunity to chair a department of preventive medicine and public health. And I said, well, why do I have to go the traditional pathway, which has kind of been my trajectory. I've not done things that's traditional for a general internist. Well, I went down to Wichita, interviewed for the position three times. I went for a visit <laughs> and eventually decided, you know, I'm going to go for it. And so I was there at KU for about seven and a half years as a department chair. And I completed an additional training at Dartmouth in healthcare delivery science, which really prepared me to focus on population health. And then this position became available here at University of New Mexico Health Sciences Center to serve as dean for the second college of its kind in the country of this College of Population Health. So that's been kind of my trajectory. And really what I've always sought is opportunity to make a difference. And this is a new college. There's a lot of work to be done, but I really feel like I have an opportunity to make a difference as a general internist who's a public health practitioner and who really wants to promote population health. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. It's interesting to me that you and I have both gotten that same advice from completely different people. They're actually both are female that the advice I got was every five to seven years, evaluate what where you are, what you're doing. You don't have to move institutions, but you need to make a change. And it can be a change within the same organization. It can be a change within your research focus, or it could be a change to someplace else, If particularly if you're thinking about leadership opportunities. So can you say a little bit about maybe at each of these points, or if you have a general rubric of how you evaluate at that five-year mark for you or over the course of your career, how did you evaluate where you are and whether you needed to move? Right. So what I did was when I was in Houston, I was really very fortunate to secure VA funding, but I wasn't securing NIH funding. And I'm at a VA center of excellence where things are very focused on health services research. Mm -hmm. And my career in research in the area of peripheral artery disease was moving along fine, but I recognized I wasn't having quite the impact I wanted to have. So I was encouraged to kind of branch out and look at becoming a clinical trialist. However, I was not surrounded by the expertise among clinical trialists, which is why I began to look outside of my organization. So it was the work I was doing, what kind of impact was I making? Had I kind of reached a plateau? And from that plateau, what other options should I consider? And I could have maybe stayed at Baylor and began to work more closely with other clinicians, but it just so happened as I reached out to people around the country who were excellent in clinical trials, I ended up meeting Dr. Alan Hirsch. He was a guru in peripheral artery disease, and he invited me up to give a talk, and it just so happened as he's inviting me up to give a talk, Jazz is relocating, Jazz Alawalia, to Minneapolis. So it became this sort of the perfect storm in a good way, where I would have expertise to help me grow my career. Plus, I would have someone who had been following me along all the years at Society of General Internal Medicine 
and knew me and would be supportive. So I saw all of these as like, oh, this, the time is right to make a move. So I think when you look at your current institution, see where you are with your career, can you do more at your current institution or is it time to look outside? And then be sure that if you do look outside, there's a support group in place to help you go to the next level. That's fantastic rubric. You know, one of the things that is so beautiful in what you describe is sort of the very careful, thoughtful approach that you've used. Some might look at your career in the same ways that they've looked at my career. And I've had people tell me, oh, you're fearless. You just sort of go forward. And the reality is, is that there might be a little bit of that, but primarily it's about describing that kind of rubric that you describe, that you're carefully weighing the different options. And I just wondered if people had ever talked to you or mentioned that to you, that, you know, you sort of are fearless in the way that you've moved forward. You know, I think my grandmother described it best. She said, you're brave. She, <laughs> right. <laughs> as if to say, you venture out into things, into areas that others don't always venture out into. But I am cautious, as you pointed out, that I do weigh my options. And I think about, okay, if this doesn't work, what's my backup plan? I call it my trap door, my plan B. Yes, right. yes, exactly. <laughs> see, it's interesting because you've been in a lot of geographically pretty disparate or different places around the country. And Mm -hmm. so the particular perspective that you bring as an African-American woman might have a different valence in different places. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what it means to be a leader from a diverse background in the settings that you've been in. What are some of the things that you felt you've been able to add because of your identities? What are some of the challenges that you've come across? So as a woman of color, and specifically as an African-American woman, people have often been curious about who I am, but they've also been hungry to see someone like me in a leadership role. So even in Minneapolis, as progressive as Minnesota can be, I found that many of the women of color and even men of color would flock to me and want to get to know me and figure out, can I do research with you? I mean, I had a cadre of medical students Asian-American, African-American, they were really hungry to see another woman of color in a leadership role. So with that, there comes an additional sort of expectation that you're going to be available, which I think is a beautiful thing, but you have to be cautious not to stretch yourself too thin, because ultimately I was recruited there to do research, see patients, have some administrative roles. But in addition, I've now taken on being a mentor to these students. And we did a great job with the various studies that they engaged in. I watched one pre-med student who's now a resident in family medicine move from just thinking about med school to actually being a doctor now, which I know she did the work, but I just feel proud to be having a part of her journey. That's amazing. Pre-med to being a resident. It's so wonderful to be able to see that evolution. And it sounds like you stayed connected to her as well to, to sort of know what her trajectory was. Yes, she's now a wife and a mother and finishing up residency. And I'm just so proud of her. Yeah. So you started hinting a little bit at the costs. Yeah. 
So with the costs, you know, when you're a woman of color and you're in a place where there aren't many of you in a leadership role, the ask is not limited to those who might look like you or just identify with you. Suddenly you become this go-to person for issues around inclusivity, diversity, equity, all very important. But unless you've signed on to a specific role with that title, again, there you have to exercise caution that, yes, maybe I can attend one meeting after hours once a week, but I can't be at six different meetings and then anticipate actually getting funding and writing my grants and taking care of my patients. So it's a balancing act of knowing when to say no and when to say yes. And you can also see it as an opportunity for someone else to be included in the ask. Like, have you considered this person down the hall? He or she has a strong interest in this topic and would love to be a part of this opportunity. So it's understanding how you can delegate when you have an opportunity and then taking care of self. Because if you just say yes to everything, At the end of the day, something is going to fail and you're not going to be at your best. Really important advice there. Tracy, you have been incredibly successful in each of the leadership roles that you've had. And what I find is that sometimes people only think about those successes. And so I'm going to ask you two questions. One is, what's a success or achievement that you're particularly proud of? And what's an important failure or mistake that you've made that you've learned from and how did you bring that forward? So what I'm proud of is that when I was recruited to KU in Wichita, on the Wichita campus, I was recruited to grow the culture of clinical research. And this had been a campus that for like 30 plus years had pretty much shunned research. It was strictly for educating the future doctors of Kansas. So when I came in the door, I had to make people feel comfortable and safe with me. Not only was I an outsider, I was the only female chair, the only person of color who was a chair, and I was an MD, but who did a lot of research. So what I did was I made sure that I created a system within my department that supported research. I brought people together to collaborate, not only on the Wichita campus, but with our colleagues in Kansas City. And then I began to set up mentoring teams so that people could understand that they had expertise among their colleagues and that a mentor would not have to be hierarchical. It could be a peer. So we created a grant writing workshop. And from there, we began to submit more grants And from a culture where they did not allow research to one in which we actually secured 3K awards on the campus. Wow. I really felt very good about that. And these are three women, two women of color and one woman who's Asian American and non-Hispanic white, but they all have K awards and they're all making a difference in either maternal child health, diabetes and underserved communities or infant mortality. And they're now recognized on the campus as leaders. So I feel really good about that. Yeah, that's an incredible achievement. Thank you. Where I feel like there's a failure that I learned from was coming in as an outsider, it took a lot of effort to make community members feel comfortable with me. And at times, I wish that I had spent even more time nurturing those relationships in Wichita. Ultimately, I was able to create some amazing partnerships with unknowing people like um, bankers Mm. and other community leaders. But I wish that I had started sooner trying to establish those friendships, those support groups, 
it ultimately came about over about four years when I wish it would have happened in about a year. So now that I'm here in Albuquerque, I'm really making a good effort to get out and know as many community stakeholders as I can. Yeah, really important lesson. That value of relationships, and I wonder, you know, while you might not have focused on the external stakeholders when you were in Wichita, it sounds like the kind of culture change that you describe, you had to have focused on the internal stakeholders. Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever faced a challenge, whether personally or professionally, that led to a crisis of faith or made you doubt what you were doing or the step that you were taking in your career? I had a personal issue back on Christmas of 2016 that was completely devastating. It was the traumatic brain injury of a niece. And the whole process of watching healthcare work with my sister, her mother, and her dad, and navigate them, rush them through decisions that were very traumatic, made me question, okay, what am I doing in medicine? And how can I change this approach to dealing with this family who can never go back and undo what's already happened? So it made me question how I deliver care and what am I doing with my research and where is my voice? And I really wanted to impact in a positive way the transition of my niece to the other side. Mm. And it took us 14 months to get through that process. My sister, my former brother-in-law, they're still recovering, but it was a crisis of faith because I watched firsthand how there was not much patience with these parents who were devastated that their 24-year-old daughter would never be the same again and ultimately was not coming back to us. And so as I think about how medicine, how population health, how the determinants of health are being addressed, I definitely see that there's opportunity for me to make a difference. But I had to go through that painful process most recently of watching this unfold on a personal level. I'm so sorry to hear about that loss. All of my nieces and nephews are sort of going through my mind right now as I think about that. How did you navigate that? How did you move through that? I had a lot of conversations with the healthcare system, with the hospital, with attorneys. I have a very good friend who's an attorney, just understanding what our options were. And then being there to support my sister, who when you've carried a child in your womb for nine months, you wanna see them outlive you. And when that's cut short, you are in a place of tremendous darkness and sadness. And I was just wanting to be there for her and that helped me. My nurturing or being supportive of her was in turn a comfort to me. That's really, thank you for sharing that, Tracy. I can't imagine how hard that must have been for your family. Yeah, it was one of those things where you don't think Christmas is gonna quite turn out this way, but it does change you. Yeah, for sure. I'm going to move us now to the questions that we ask every guest in closing. Okay. You mentioned a little bit about self-care, the sort of the need to focus on self-care. So can you tell us about what you do for self-care or what hobbies you might have? 
Yes, so each morning I spend time meditating, just reflecting on what I want to accomplish, spend time in prayer, and that keeps me grounded. I do make sure that I block off time to exercise at least three to four days a week. Um, so I joined a gym, and that gym has high-intensity interval training, which I have found to be very invigorating. I can get in, get my hour workout, and feel good about it. I am also making sure that I spend time with my partner, that we take time each evening to have dinner together, catch up on our day. So my individual time, my exercise, time with my family is very important to me. And that's what I use for my self-care. In addition to finding fun things to do on the weekend, there's a lot to learn in New Mexico. Mm-hmm. That's some beautiful geography there. And it's a few times I've been there. Lots of fun things to do. Right, exactly. Who or what are your sources of inspiration? Yeah, so my sources of inspiration have been family, friends from college, friends from residency. And when I think about the people who've inspired me the most, it's been a combination of men who interviewed me when I was applying to med school. And one of the interviewers was very supportive during the interview process. He's like, we know you're smart. Don't be nervous. Tell us about who Tracy is. Now, this was a non-Hispanic white male, and it was three men interviewing me, so there were no women around the table. But he went out of his way to make me feel very comfortable and to highlight that even through um, undergrad, I already shown that I was capable of making it through med school. So just relax, enjoy the interview. So that particular experience was very inspirational to me. And it's something that I use now when I'm interacting with those who are coming up the ranks to help remind them that, look, you've accomplished so much already. Just relax and let's get to know each other. The other piece is family. I have a lot of educators in my family. My uncle Andrew was a principal. My cousin Carolyn and my mother's side, she was a teacher And they've been very active in the community, very proactive around issues around community, health equity, social justice. And they have been my role models for using my voice. So whether that be in a forum, whether that be writing, I have a voice and I need to use it. Does me no good to just sit in my office and write grants. I need to speak up. So that has also been a guiding principle for me. And going back to my mother's comment, you know, if it's worth having, you have to work for it. I know that hard work pays off and that gets me up and out of bed every day, knowing that I have a college that I need to grow and I'm going to have to work for it. I've got to drive to Santa Fe and meet the legislature. I've got to drive down south. I've got to make the effort. I've got to work for it. That's that's wonderful. Tell us what your favorite leadership book is or a book that you'd recommend to others. Yeah, so I have a few that I have been reading over the years. Most recently, I have really enjoyed reading Tribal Leadership. Uh, It's on my bedside. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so really understanding the natural groups that you have and building a thriving organization, I would highly recommend that. Having come into this role, there was some um, frustration among staff and faculty about how the college was started. There was the feeling that faculty, at least, didn't really have a say, just kind of happened. Now, of course, there's always two sides to every story, but because of the way it evolved, I had to come in and figure out how do I get people working together in teams and recognizing their natural strengths and that we're all here with the common goal of growing this college and making a difference. So I found this book to be very helpful. What do you think separates good leaders from great leaders? 
I think a good leader really sets out with a plan to make a difference. And a great leader pulls in their team to make it happen. That it's really, it's not one person, it's a collective effort. And then finally, what advice would you give to your younger self? I would have more fun along the way. There are times when things became so intense that my family had to say, no, look, is it really that serious? (laughs) And so like five years later, I'm like, okay, I really need to start enjoying myself as I go through this journey. And so my younger self, I would tell my younger self, have fun along the way, make good use of your time, really get to know people and nurture relationships. Yeah, because you know, tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, your wisdom, and your openness to these questions. Perfect. Well, I have really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. It's been an honor. I appreciate the invite and the opportunity. You have been listening to A Different Kind of Leader. If you like what you have heard, please rate us and leave a comment wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others find us. Also, look for us on Facebook and Instagram at Different Kind of Leader as well as Twitter at DK Leadership. You can also email us at differentkindofleader at gmail.com. Please let us know what leadership questions you have for our guests and which inspiring leaders you would like for us to interview next.